This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. You know, we're in a trio of special Sundays from the Christian year, which we don't slavishly celebrate, but we did reflect on Ascension Sunday two weeks ago and Pentecost last week. Today, the church has for hundreds of years celebrated Trinity Sunday. And this is a bit of a different Sunday than Christmas or Good Friday or Easter Sunday, where we celebrate events in the life of Christ. Today, we want to take some deliberate reflection, not on an event, but on the reality that undergirds all of Christian life and all of Christian worship, that we worship a God who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And although today we are giving some special focus to the triune nature of God, I don't intend for this to be, you know, a one-off Sunday where we think about the Trinity and then we put them in a drawer for the rest of the year so we can meditate on more interesting aspects of the Christian faith. The one in three and three in one God is what pervades all of our Christian life and all of our Christian worship, and I hope is at the very core and at the very center of this church. I want us to turn this afternoon to Matthew chapter 28 as we specifically meditate on what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to be immersed into the triune God. Now, we're going to turn to the very last Verses of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, a passage Christians have traditionally referred to as the Great Commission. Listen to the word of God. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The church baptizes with the authority of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not a ritual that a group of pastors or a council of bishops devise in an interesting and memorable way to mark entry into the Christian faith. We baptize because Jesus has commanded us to baptize. And I want you to reflect this afternoon on your own baptism, not as a distant or perhaps not so distant memory, but as an act with repercussions that reverberate into the present and far into the future. It's very healthy for Christians to meditate on their baptism, what it symbolizes and signifies and seals to us in Christ so that we can live out of the full good of what the triune God has done for us in baptism. And it is amazing to think, as I look on all these faces, most of us who have been baptized into the triune name at one time or the other, some of us perhaps sprinkled by a priest when we were infants, others uh, brought to the front of the church as a teenager and baptized before the congregation, perhaps some of you baptized in the bathtub at home by your parents. But all of us 
have this common experience of going through the waters of baptism at the very beginning of our Christian life. And what is amazing is that all of us are in a long chain of disciples who have baptized other disciples who have baptized other disciples going all the way back to the apostles. Some of us perhaps could mark our chain of apostolic succession through the apostle Thomas or through John or through James or through Paul. All of us can trace our baptism back to this original command that the risen Jesus gave to his apostles. As they hesitated there, very honestly, as Matthew records, between worship and doubt, as they encounter Jesus on the mountain. Jesus standing there like a new Moses, giving the new law of God to his followers. He commands them to make disciples, of which there are two aspects to discipleship. Baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. It's not enough to just evangelize, just to make converts. They must be baptized, initiated into Christ and his church, and then mentored into a lifetime of following Jesus. Discipleship, discipleship is slow, patient work as we train one another to become disciples in the kingdom of Jesus. And in discipleship, baptism is just as essential, as essential as teaching. Baptize them and teach them. And we can think of baptism as the door to the schoolroom of Christ. You know, in the early church, and you can see this in many Orthodox and Catholic churches today, the baptistry is placed at the very door of the church so that you cannot enter the church except through going through the waters of baptism. And perhaps if we could raise the money to buy this building, we'd build a baptistry right at the very bottom of that stairwell to symbolize that we're entering into Christ and then ascending in our obedience to him. It is striking as well, I don't want to spend too much time unpacking this text, that this great commission, this command to teach and disciple and baptize is sandwiched between two great affirmations Jesus makes about himself. First of all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is clothed with universal power, cosmic authority in the heavens and in the earth. And as we meditated on in Daniel 7, a couple of weeks ago on Ascension Day, there is no part of this universe over which Jesus does not have authority. And then Jesus promises after this command, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Universal power and eternal presence. Um, that's what undergirds this command to baptize and to disciple. And what I want us to meditate on today and reflect upon today is that this is baptism into the threefold name of God in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a book I want to share with you, and let me grab it from my bag here. This is a very unusual book. It's called The Magnificent Three, written by Nikki Cruz. If any of you have read The Cross and the Switchblade, 
the story of these drug addicts and gangsters in New York who were brought to Christ by Pentecostal missionary-backed men in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you might know the name of Nicky Cruz. I bought this book because Fred Sanders, the theologian Fred Sanders, refers to this as the only book on the Trinity with a knife fight. And man, theology would be a lot more exciting if there were more knife fights being described in those theological books. And this book is called The Magnificent Three. At the very beginning of this book, Nikki Cruz says, when I first became a Christian, I knew nothing about anything. As far as the things of God were concerned, I was a totally ignorant man. I knew nothing. But Jesus reached me despite my ignorance of him. I was a filthy, sinful, murdering street fighter, a criminal full of bitterness and hatred. But a skinny preacher stood on a street corner one day and told me that Jesus loved me. That's all. He just told me that Jesus loved me and that he had suffered and died for me to show his love. And he describes himself as a new Christian, as, as sitting at the table, and there was roast beef and potatoes and green beans, but he was such a baby that it took him a long time to learn how to consume all the riches of the Christian faith. And he describes that as he began to follow Christ, something happened in his life that he would never have predicted, that he learned to have fellowship with God as Trinity to relate to him as three in one, God is Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. And he says this, this is very important. I'm not talking about theology. What I am describing is something different from merely believing in the doctrine of the Trinity. I've always believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, but I had never experienced God personally as three in one. It was at first merely a doctrine in which I believed, but now it has become a truth of everyday life. God has developed in me a sense of the separate relationships which I can have with Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. He has shown me the strength that comes from those separate relationships, the power for living that comes from the three faces of God. He has taught me to feed off the Trinity for my daily sustenance rather than just having some vague feeling that the Trinity is somehow true. There's a few things I would like to correct about his statement, which I will do later on, but I love this thirst that Nikki Cruz had for the face of the living God. And when he became a Christian, he had this increasing desire to know God as he really is. And he learned the most important thing about God is that God is three in one, one God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as we meditate on the Trinity today, and as we meditate on being baptized into the name of the triune God, I don't want us to think about God as some arid, dehydrated, very irrelevant theological doctrine that can be left to seminary professors and monks, but has no relevance for ordinary Christians. Our souls ought to hunger and thirst to meet with the living God, to see him as he is, to bow before him in love and adoration, to have an encounter with the God who created us, who saved us, and who has destined us for himself. And you will learn, if you have not learned already in your life, that ultimate happiness cannot come from within yourself or from any other human creature, but it can only come in union with the triune 
God. And the whole Christian life is about purifying our hearts for the highest possible joy to see the face of God, to behold God as he really is, and to experience him embracing us in divine love. It is amazing that we meet the Trinity at the very beginning of the Christian life when we are baptized. This is not like a level nine theta mystery for Scientologists or the Masons where you get inducted into increasing secrets and mysteries. If you've persevered long enough, if you've paid long enough fees, if you've gone through the right rituals of initiation, every single believer is inducted, is brought into the reality of the triune God when you become a Christian, when you repent, when you believe, and when you are baptized. It's very telling in this passage that Matthew does not actually say, or Jesus does not actually say, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but into that name. What Jesus is describing is not a liturgical formula, the exact correct words that must be uttered for a ritual. He's describing what baptism accomplished for you. And when you are baptized, you were actually immersed into the reality that was God. You were plunged into a new relationship with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Eternal life is to know God. And when you're baptized, your very life is placed within the life of God. And you are now enclosed and surrounded and contained within the three-in-one and the one-in-three. And so baptism is not merely some optional add-on that you can take or that you can leave. It's the entry into a new world. It's participation in ultimate reality, which is God himself. And when you repent and when you believe and when you are baptized, you can say, the triune God is now my new home. I inhabit ultimate reality. In 2 Peter 1, the Apostle Peter says that we were made partakers of the divine nature. We're meant to live the very life of God, to feed on Him, to drink of Him, to actually participate in the very life of God. Of course, we're always human beings. We're always creatures. We don't become the fourth and the fifth and the sixth members of the Trinity. God is always God. We are always His creatures, but we're made in the image of God we're made for communion with God. We're made for the deepest possible relationship with Him. And I want to remind you this afternoon that your Christian life is life from God, in God, and for God. And so, if God has begun to bore you, if you would rather hear of some more practical matters on how you can deal with your own struggles and your own relationships, then perhaps your heart has grown very cold and you've forgotten why God saved you in the first place.
The whole business of the baptized, the whole point of our lives is to know God, to love God, to worship God, and to become more and more like God. And so as we meditate on the Trinity, and we're going to do a little bit of theology today, we're not dealing with an awkward problem or an illogical embarrassment. We're talking about the very heart of the life of God, the God we were made and saved to know. And as the creeds of the church confess, as a faithful summary of the scriptural witness, we worship one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, equal in holiness, love, power, and glory. We confess the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, three distinct persons in one God. The Son eternally begotten of the Father, the Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father. And this is what orthodoxy is all about. We think of orthodoxy as meaning right doctrine, but it literally means right worship, right praise. And it's about our hearts before God and how we confess and how we perceive and how we encounter God. And I know we have some scientists here, but we can never approach God as detached scientists, putting him under the microscope as though he is a cadaver for us to dissect and label and document till we feel like we have mastered God, that we've acquired all the propositions and all the truth about God, and we can be done with that. God is not an object for our study. He's a three-personed God who cannot be known in detached theological study, but only in the fire of holy love, only in a relationship where we offer ourselves completely to God and experience his life at work within us. And so we're not just talking about the Trinity today, we're talking about being baptized into the Trinity where we do not encounter God as detached scientific theologians, but as those who have been brought into relationship with God, who have been immersed into relationship by God, who can only know Him in that way. So let's think of what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's begin with baptism in the name of the Son. Because Christ is the one whom we first encounter. And the most consistent description for believers, for disciples, for Christians in the New Testament are people who have been placed into Christ. We are those in Christ. In every benefit of salvation, justification, adoption, forgiveness, holiness, are only ours because we are in Christ. Jesus, as we sang, is at the center of salvation, and every spiritual blessing, as Ephesians, 1, as Ephesians 1 teaches, is in Christ. Chosen in Him, adopted in Him, redeemed in Him, 
sealed in him. The living center of your salvation, of our common salvation, is Jesus Christ himself. Every blessing of the grace of God is found in Jesus. They cannot be separated from him. You can't go to Jesus and take your blessings and leave him alone. We only enjoy salvation in union with Christ through faith. And all those blessings are ours because we share in Christ's death and resurrection. This is what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6, which we'll bring up on the screen, that it is in baptism that we are united with Christ. Here's what Paul writes. Don't you know, this is Romans 6, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In baptism, the act that completed your conversion process, repentance, faith, baptism, you were fused with Jesus. You were made one with him. And somehow, in a mysterious way that we cannot rationally fully explain, we're made one with Jesus, and it is though we died on the cross with him, and we were raised from the dead with him. And once you are baptized, you can no longer be separated from Jesus or considered apart from him. You are united with him. And as those who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, our calling now is to abide in him, to abide in the vine, to dwell in Jesus, knowing that apart from Christ, we can do nothing and we are nothing. Baptized into the Son. But of course, we cannot share in the Son without also sharing in the Father of the Son. And therefore, we're also baptized into the name of the Father. Because salvation is not just about Jesus. We realize that it was the Father who sent Jesus into this world to become a human being for us. And it was in obedience to the will of the Father that Jesus suffered and that he died. And it was by the power of the Father that Jesus was raised from the dead. And into the hands of Jesus, the Father had placed these 11 disciples and all those who would believe in the name of Jesus after him. And therefore, we should never think of salvation as though a merciful Jesus intervened to save us from the wrath of his very angry Father. The cross is the manifestation of the love of the Father. And now through the gift of his son, we can approach the throne boldly. We have been baptized into a new relationship with God, not as our angry judge, but as our loving father. And the God whom we worship and we stand in fearsome awe of as a consuming fire, we also approach this God in confidence through Jesus as the father who loves us. And if we're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son, then we are also baptized into the name of the Spirit. A single name, by the way, as Matthew records, not three separate names, a single name, the one being of God. There's nothing 
that one member of the Trinity does, where the other two are also not present and working. The operations of the Holy Trinity are inseparable, indivisible. And wherever Jesus is, the Father is also present, and where the Father and the Son are present, we find the Spirit is also at work. And in fact, without the Holy Spirit, you cannot know the Son or be in relationship with the Father. Irenaeus of Lyon was a church father in about the 150s in France. He was a Greek. He's a fascinating guy because he was discipled by Polycarp, and Polycarp was discipled by John the Apostle. So when we read these very early writings, we're reading someone who's like a spiritual grandson of one of the apostles. And St. Irenaeus describes so beautifully the Son and the Spirit as the two arms by which the Father embraces us. Isn't that lovely? The Son and the Spirit are the two arms by which the Father embraces us and draws us close. The very first sentence of Genesis describes the Spirit of God hovering upon the face of the waters. He is the creator spirit. And this same spirit who brooded over the waters must also brood over the formless void of our own lives and create us anew so that we can come and be new creations in Christ and come to the Father. No one can come to the Father, to the Son, unless the Father draws them. And the Father draws through the spirit that he has given us, the spirit of Jesus. The Spirit is the breath of God breathing on our dry bones so that we can stand and live and worship. And the Spirit who has been given to indwell our hearts, to live within us, He sends us, He brings us to Jesus the Son, and Jesus takes us by the hand and brings us to the Father. That's why, even if you're not very theologically literate, and that's okay, every Christian prays to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not about what we know doctrinally, it's about the reality that we inhabit. We're all living in the life of the triune God. And so we're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we experience this new deep, increasing relationship with each member of the Holy Trinity. There's something a little bit deeper than that, though. In this book, Nikki Cruz described having separate relationships with each member of the Trinity. But I think it's much better to realize that we cannot have a separate relationship with each member of the Trinity because God is one. It's not a collection of three gods, of three individuals who together make up a club or community called the Godhead. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are not individuals in the way that we think of human beings as individuals. We're talking about the three persons of the one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in being, one in essence, one in in nature, sharing one will and possessing one common life. And therefore, it is not actually possible to have a separate relationship 
with each member of the Trinity because God is one. Wherever the Son is, the Father and the Spirit are also present. I want to share with you a quote by Gregory of Nazianzus from the year 381. Gregory's an interesting guy because he's one of only three saints the Eastern Orthodox Church has recognized as theologians. There's John, the Apostle, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Simeon, the new theologian. Because in the Orthodox tradition, I think this is very wise, they recognize that theology is not an academic pursuit only, but it's about the heart being filled with the love and the holiness of God. It's about prayer and communion with God. And only three teachers they have recognized as men who have been so close to God, not just in theory and in, in the intellect, but in their actual lives of prayer and contemplation and communion, that they consider them worthy to be called theologians. And here's what Gregory preached in his sermon on baptism, January the 6th, 381, in the city of Constantinople. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. It's as though Gregory is kind of oscillating between the oneness of God and the threeness of God. And he realizes we cannot isolate the members of the Trinity as though we could divide God into three pieces and separate them. We can only think of God as the undivided three-in-one Trinity. And I think as we contemplate the riches of being baptized into the Trinity, we discover that we're not dealing with three separate members of the Trinity, but we're brought into this three-in-one relationship that describes the inner life of God. I want to share with you a few verses from John chapter 17 the prayer that Jesus prayed before going to the cross. It's the most profound description we have in all of Scripture of the Son's relationship with the Father as we get to overhear Jesus praying. So turn, if you can, to John chapter 17, and I want to share five verses from verses 20 to 24. And by no means will we exhaust what's in these verses. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone, for the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Note that, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. You have loved them, Jesus says, about us. The Father has loved us, even as the Father loves the Son. That is an amazing statement. What John describes in very simple words, in very rough Greek, in fact, that the Father 
loves us, He loves you this afternoon with the very same love with which He loves the Son. The same love. And when we are adopted into the Trinity, we enjoy, by grace, what Jesus the Son enjoys by nature. The very same love. Not one infinite love for the Son and then a reduced subset of that for you. The very same love with which the Father loves the Son is now being poured out on you. The infinite, eternal, glorious love of the Father for His Son is far beyond human comprehension. And our fingers can only reach out to touch it. But as sons and daughters through Christ, the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, we fully participate in the Son's relationship with the Father. If you believe in Jesus, you have the full rights of sonship, and you can come to the Father with the same boldness, the same confidence, with the same expectation of being loved as Christ himself goes to the Father. That is an incredible truth. That the best of us here, the holiest of us, the most advanced as a disciple has barely begun to experience. I want to share one more text from the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Perhaps not worthy to be called a theologian in the Orthodox tradition, but yet a true revelation of the heart of God. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now we have the full Trinitarian picture. The Son, the Spirit of the Son of God, has been poured into our hearts to help us actually experience in our lives the adoption that is ours in Christ. We have not been left as orphans. We've been given the Spirit of Jesus so that we might actually experience this sonship. So we're not talking about some kind of invisible, ineffable status that has no bearing to your life. The Spirit's been given so that we might actually participate in this. At the heart of the Christian faith is relationship. 
sinful human beings, cleansed by Jesus, given the awesome privilege of knowing God as our Father, being embraced as sons and daughters with two arms of the Son and the Spirit. And the journey of the Christian life, after we've entered by the door of baptism, we begin going up the stairs, as it were, in an increasing experience of the Spirit in our hearts, giving us a growing confidence as we experience the Son's relationship with the Father. When you were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you were plunged into this Trinitarian reality, held in the flames of the love of the triune God. Are you living out of the good of your baptism? Are you reaching out with your whole heart to experience what God has offered you in his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? Because I think to our shame, and I speak of myself just as much as anyone here, instead of living with the full joy and confidence and love as sons and daughters, we so often live as slaves, as orphans, as prodigals, foolishly cutting ourselves off from the union, from the communion, from the joy that God offers us. I want to urge you this Trinity Sunday to seize what God has given you in your baptism. What he's offered you as you've put your faith in Jesus. That by the Spirit, you might grow in ever-increasing fellowship with the Father of Jesus. Shall we pray and ask for this grace? Father, we come to you, naming you as our Heavenly Father, as Jesus himself taught us to do. Our Savior said, my God and your God, my Father and your Father. And we thank you, God, for opening us up out of your word this afternoon, just a glimpse of the awesome privilege that we have as sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, increase the hunger and thirst that we ought to be having for you. Take the love that has perhaps flickered and become lukewarm and blow it into a fire of blazing love by your Spirit, that we might seek your face, O Lord, that we might continue on in the journey of knowing you, of ascending the holy mountain so that we might behold the face of the thrice holy God. Lord, give us, by your Spirit, a deep confidence in Christ that we might approach with boldness, with expectation, and with holy joy. Lord, purify our hearts by the Son and by the Holy Spirit so that we might see together the face of the God who loves us so much. In the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. 
Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.